Welcome to the Anthemus Podcast, where we discuss, dissect, and snark on the histories and music of national anthems and the songs which define a nation. I'm your host, Josh Hugel. And I'm Robert Winship. It's episode two, and today we're talking about Spain. And you know what? You cannot spell Spain without the Seven Years' War. A brief history of the country. Uh, the country of Spain begins with the arrival of people on the Iberian Peninsula 35,000 years ago. And we will cover their march through history millennia by millennia. And we're going to bypass that and skip ahead to 1761, where Spain is currently, then currently, embroiled in the Seven Years' War. And that is misnomer number one. The Seven Years' War actually lasted more like nine years. And at the time, this is the largest conflict in human history. Uh, the French and Indian War, which is how we know it here in the U.S., began in 1754 and spread to Europe as a whole in 1756. And it's that discrepancy. It's 56, if you want to count seven years, yeah. uh, or a few years back in 54, uh, which was more French and American-specific before it wrapped up the rest of Europe. Anyway, it was fought on five continents and involved all five major European powers at the time. It affects Europe, the Americas, West Africa, India, and the Philippines. It's kind of an amazing thing that uh, we don't really talk about this war, like this conflict practically at all in the U.S. because our education system has a rather Amerocentric slant, so we typically... Like the the end result of the Seven Years' War is like England's emergence as the predominant world power, but it also cost like so much money, and which then led to taxing America to then pay for this massive conflict that they came out kind of on the winning side of, which then led to the revolution. But that's ultimately really the only thing that we focus on as a part of this thing. Sure. That again, like people were fighting each other in Africa and India because of stuff that was happening between Catholics and Protestants in in like Western Europe, which to to like to anybody should be like this crazy mind boggling thing. Sure. And was like a true world war because as you said, like it's fought on five continents. That's insane. But we're just like, oh yeah, it was some stuff that was happening in like the Ohio River Valley in Ontario. Here in the US, uh, we sort of begin with episode four, A New Hope, but Josh's George Lucas would have us know that there are three more episodes before. Don't worry, guys, we're going to get there. How does Anakin become Darth Vader? From here, we cover the beginning of the Marcha Real, which is the first Spanish national anthem. So uh, starting in 1761, during the height of that conflict, uh, the Marcha Granadera, uh, which is the March of the Grenadiers, first appears in a book of bugle calls called Libro de la Ordenanza de los Toques de Pipanos y Tambores que se tocan nuevamente en la Infant Española, uh, written by a man named Manuel de Espinosa. Uh, the composition is sometimes mistakenly attributed to Frederick II of Prussia. Uh, he was a great lover of music and I think still wielded, via the Holy Roman Empire, like a, still a bit of influence in the Spanish body politic, I guess. Uh, this really comes out when we listen to the song. One of these, one of the two that we will hear today sounds inherently very Spanish, and the other one much less so, which is kind of fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, so in 1770, King Carlos III declares it the official honor march to be played at events attended by the royal family. It is then renamed the Marcha Real, and it becomes the official 
anthem during Isabella II's reign. This move symbolically forever links the Marcha Real, or King's March, with the monarchy. So henceforth, um, any time the monarchy is then knocked over, you will kind of see it fall out of favor. And when the same monarchy comes back, it is immediately reestablished. So let's play the damn thing. This is the Marcha Real. In 1793, Spain goes to war against the new French Republic as part of what is known as the First Coalition. Now, at that time, France is in the middle of a revolution, so it's sort of like the sharks beginning to circle. The French are not only facing off against an internal French army, but also the Dutch, the British, the Holy Roman Empire, Prussia, Naples, Portugal, Sardinia, and Spain. Basically, France is in the process of knocking over their own government, and the major European powers take this opportunity to invade from multiple directions because they smell blood in the water and want to take their own respective pieces of a toppled country. Enter a small man with a big plan. 1804, Napoleon declares the first French empire uh, and goes about, you know, basically like reclaiming all of their territory and then some. Uh, that was lost like over the last 20-year period or 15-year period, I guess. Sure. Uh, 1807, he makes a secret treaty with the prime minister of Spain. Uh, Napoleon's troop enter the country by invitation in order to invade Portugal, but instead betray them, knock over all their major fortresses, and basically say, like, this is mines now. They replace the Spanish king uh, with Napoleon's brother, Joseph. They basically end up in a devastating civil war starting the next year, fighting against the now-installed monarch. A couple years later, in 1810, a coalition known as the Cortes of Cadiz, which represented the entire Spanish Empire, was assembled to coordinate the effort against the Bonapartist regime and to prepare a constitution, which they do pull off in 1812. So enter King Ferdinand VII, uh, who... Upon the collapse of the Bonapartist Empire, uh, ascends the throne in 1814. He is a total autocrat and immediately just abolishes the two-year-old constitution and decides to rule as an absolute monarch. This lasts for about six years until a group of soldiers assembled at Cadiz, which is just south of Sevilla, are preparing for an expedition to South America. They are angry over infrequent pay, bad food, poor quarters. And they're like, you know what, man? Like, I'm not going to go die of typhus in some jungle on the other side of this really weird map with a bunch of squiggles on it or whatever. I'm not, no, I can't be asked. Uh, And they choose to mutiny uh, under the leadership of Colonel Rafael de Riego y Nunez. Uh, They pledged fealty to the previously drafted 1812 constitution. Uh, On March 9, 1820... Ferdinand, like, eight, so eight years later, or excuse me, 
Nope, that's completely wrong. Let me try that again. And by March 9th of 1820, Ferdinand has read the writing on the wall and declares that he will accept the old constitution and grants power to liberal ministers kicking off a period known as the Triennial Liberal, or the Liberal Triennium, as as we'll call it uh, henceforth. However, as a result of, you know, his tomfoolery, I guess, liberal revolutionaries then like storm the king's palace and Ferdinand becomes a prisoner in all but name and wisely decides to retire to his chalet south of Madrid. Enter a new anthem. During this period, they scrap the Marcha Real, which is sort of guilty by association with the monarchy, and a new song is written in honor of the general who kicked off this revolution, Rafael de Riego, and the song is simply titled Himno de Riego. It was composed by a Spanish romantic composer, José Melcor Gómez, to the words written by Evaristo Fernández de San Miguel. Let's listen to the other national anthem from Spain's past, Himno de Riego. You know, it's it's worth noting that we're kind of understandably hearing basically an inversion of what we covered last week, whereas the Marta Real is, is very much about like devotion to the flag, the fatherland, the monarch. Uh, Riego is, man, this Riego dude is so amazing because he just stamps out corruption and tyranny. And, you know, he's like just a man of the, our, our own personal folk hero that we believe should be celebrated. Uh, so, like, here's this awesome song about this thing. And may his reign last a thousand years. And uh, and maybe we can give a little bit of a spoiler alert here. But uh, this one doesn't last. Unlike Wilhelmus, and if you haven't listened to episode one where we talk about the Dutch national anthem, Wilhelmus, uh, which celebrates a, a sort of similar type of figure but becomes the ultimate national anthem, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode one of Anthemist. Now it's time to talk about the fall of the triennium. Just because they're a group of guys that think that they can do things better uh, and choose to knock over their own government doesn't necessarily mean that, like, the life of a revolutionary rarely ends peacefully. Sure. The same year as the, the triennium is established, outright civil war breaks out in Castile, Toledo, and Andalusia. Uh, Aragon, Navarre, and Catalonia are also pretty opposed to this new liberal government. Uh, they pass a lot of kind of like anti-Catholic reforms, so the Catholic Church is also pretty pissed. 
Uh, they yet again end the Spanish Inquisition, which at this point has been going on for 350 years, mm-hmm. uh, which led them to being accused of, bring, of being Francophiles, which again, like... The French have just been ousted only six years prior. Like, they're not that far removed. And so you have these other people coming in, like, upsetting the established order, being like, hey, man, maybe we don't have to be so hyper-theocratic. Like, we can, this can be a more democratic kind of thing. In in a lot of ways, like, they were taking steps to bring Spain into the modern era, which, while they were by no means perfect, they sought to really modernize and push industrialization and Spanish society as a whole, I guess, wasn't really ready for that drastic a change that quickly. So this sort of marks the end for Riego. In September of 1821, he's falsely accused of being a republicanist and he's imprisoned. Now, this only serves to make him more popular and and ultimately results in riots and demonstrations in his name. He, in 1822, March of 1822, is elected to the Cortes Generales, which is basically the Spanish legislative branch, uh, and he's released from prison. Later that year, in December of 1822, allied countries of Europe basically have decided that the newly liberated Spain was verging dangerously close to republicanism, and so they nominated France to invade in order to reestablish absolute monarchy. From this point, the 100,000 sons of St. Louis marched into Spain in 1823 and down went the liberal government. Welcome back, Ferdinand II. In September of 1823, Riego is betrayed and imprisoned. And then just three years after it began, the revolution is is ended uh, with a hanging of Riego in La Cebada Square in Madrid. So the March of Real is then immediately reinstated as the official anthem. And 10 years after Riego is hanged, King Ferdinand also meets an end. He dies in 1833. Goodbye, Ferdinand II. He is succeeded by his three-year-old daughter, Isabella II. This whole saga of her reign uh, is the kind of stuff that (laughs) HBO-style political drama shows a la Game of Thrones and what have you are kind of built on. Uh, in fact, I'd love to see one starring like Gino Rodriguez and Antonio Banderas as her shitbag pseudo usurper uncle. But everything promptly just becomes a giant mess. Uh, she basically keeps pulling whoever is the current person sitting in power at the top of the civilian government and replacing them. I think the longest period of consistent governance lasts like five years over her 30 year reign. Uh, she is. Ultimately, finally deposed September 1868. Um, naval forces under Admiral Juan Bautista Topete mutinied in Cadiz, the same place that Rafael de Riego uh, had launched his coup against Isabella's father a half century before. Uh, the new coalition government is a mad mishmash of moderates, liberals, and republicans, all of which don't really have any clear direction because she had basically alienated every different faction in the sitting government that basically everybody was like, I don't really care who's in charge. Like she just has to go. Right. Because we just like, this is just too much of a mess. The new government is still hell bent on uh, still installing a democratic monarchy. So led by 
General and statesman Juan Prim, the government spends the next two years combing Europe for a suitable ruler, which proves it's 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 fun, a funny thing to say that like this proved difficult, but I mean at the same time it it would be an incredible challenge to not bring in someone who has uh, French German or Prussian associations because mm-hmm. of just all of the conflicts that Spain has been mired in like over this period of time. At, at one point in time, Prim was quoted as exclaiming, "To find a democratic king in Europe is as hard as to find an atheist in heaven." In terms of the national anthem, there's a, a point in 1870 where uh, they establish a competition for a new national anthem. Because once again, we've knocked over the monarchy. <laughs> right, exactly. And so ultimately, there's no winner, and the Marcha Real remains. And last week, I thought that the idea of having a song competition for a national anthem was something of a unique thing. But maybe it's a little more common than I thought, because... Well, we've had the same one going on forever, and and we just never knew. Maybe it's time for a new American national anthem. (laughs) Maybe not in the current I'm going to go ahead and call for it right now. I want to see people out on the streets. Something written by Trace Atkins. (laughs) Anyway, the process of installing a new monarch in Spain kind of hits a low watermark in August of 1870, the same year that this competition was, was established. The Cortes finally settle on the Italian prince Amadeo of the House of Savoy, also known as the Duke of Aosta. Amadeo had less of the troublesome political baggage that a German or French claimant would bring, and he also had strong liberal credentials. In November of 1870, he's elected king uh, as Amadeo I of Spain. In November, November 27th exactly, King Amadeo of Spain lands in Cartagena the same day that Juan Prim, leader of Cortes, was assassinated. And Amadeo swears upon that general's corpse that he would uphold Spain's constitution. Unfortunately, however, he quickly found that Spain is a whole different kettle of pescada from Italy. He ultimately had no executive experience despite being a part of his father's court. And what little guidance his father could provide simply because the cultures of Italy and Spain are so different, ultimately wasn't really of much help. Uh, He found himself treated as an outsider with considerable opposition from the pro-Isabellan monarchy, the Carlist Party, as they were known. And come February of 1873, declares the people of Spain to be ungovernable and abandons the throne in the middle of the night and goes back to Italy. Here, you take your kids. I don't know what to do with them. I'm out, man. Like, I didn't even want to be here. (laughs) As a result of the then vacuum of power, the First Republic of Spain is established, which lasts a whopping 22 months before it ultimately fails. Ultimately, Amadeo is replaced by Don Alfonso de Bourbon, King Alfonso VII, uh, who's Isabella's son, five whole years after they kick Isabella II out, because time is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle, t-shirt, coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes this whole democracy bit is just way too hard. Long live the monarchy. Yep, you you give the people a voice, and people don't know what they want. So better better one person under authority from God in heaven, uh, or gods in heaven, will be the ruler. Moving on. Spain remains actually kind of stable under King Alfonso for a couple of generations, and the economy eventually recovers. 
Until a Spanish-American war breaks out at the end of the 19th century in 1898 and basically wipes out all of the gains that Spain had made economically. The gains in Spain have fallen in the plains. (laughs) (laughs) And don't mess with the Gilded Age of the U.S. Yeehaw. So Spain, uh, basically around this period, begins hemorrhaging territories as more Latin and Caribbean nations, and the Philippines, for that matter, uh, achieve independence from their Spanish overlords. Uh, Post-Spanish-American War, things just aren't great for about two decades. World War I kicks off, and they decide that, firstly, they just don't have the resources to get involved, and secondly, they're not really bound by the whole giant insane amoeba-esque like tangled web of treaties that everyone else is and they're just like look man we're just we're not going to get involved we got our own stuff going on here we're still trying to put us put everything back together after we got our butts kicked sure and there are periods of dictatorship from 1923 to 1930 alfonso pins basically all of spain's woes on parliament and backs a planned coup by Miguel Primo de Rivera, who suspends the Constitution and becomes a dictator. He also increases government spending and basically bankrupts the government. Then Alfonso forces Rivera's resignation in 1930 and calls on another general to take over. Uh, That general fails. Uh, He gives the government to an admiral who calls for local elections. And an anti-monarchy resistance grows so great that Alfonso eventually flees the country. And here we have the establishment of the Second Spanish Republic in 1931, uh, 14 April, uh, at which point the Henoriego returns as the sort of pseudo-official anthem because it was never fully codified. The Second Republic established what were for them incredibly aggressive reforms. Uh, They extended freedom of speech and freedom of association. They extended full suffrage to women in 1933. They allowed divorce, which is a huge deal (laughs) in a Catholic society, especially back then. Uh, They stripped into Spanish nobility of any special legal status and was pretty aggressively anti-religion. They established strong restrictions against the Catholic Church. Uh, And this ultimately, unfortunately, ended up too much of a pendulum swing in the other direction. It alienates a ton of conservative Catholics. Uh, and thus, as a result, enter the pro-monarchy, pro-Catholic fascists. And so we have a Spanish civil war beginning uh, just toward the late bit of the Second Spanish Republic, starting in 1936. And on one side, we have these nationalist forces led by a cadre of five generals, including Francisco Franco. And they are supported by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, uh, otherwise known as Axis powers. And then on the other side, we have these Republican forces supported by the Soviet Union, Mexico, and international brigades. It was not, however, supported by Western powers due to the British-led policy of non-intervention. The Spanish Civil War is extremely bloody, and it leaves the country in shambles with half a million dead. And it creates a a diaspora of up to 500,000 citizens from the country of Spain. The government falls at the end of the 30s and April 1st, 1939. The general who was supposed to take over uh, dies in a plane crash that year. 
So Franco acts as a foreign liaison to Mussolini and Hitler and receives Hitler's backing. And Franco's direct rival also dies in a plane crash the same year under mysterious circumstances. That's what that Generalissimo Franco uh, ascends to the pinnacle of power uh, in Spain. Again, like... This is yet another thing that we just don't really like because we're so focused on like, oh, man, like the Nazis are just knocking down country after country. And we got the Blitz and like the UK and keep calm and carry on and everything that's going on that. And, you know, America riding in super late and and then showing up and be like, we got this, yeah, man, let's it. go. <laughs> uh, you again, like this is just one of those things that because like it doesn't really factor into our history at all. Like we weren't really involved in that. We didn't even sell them arms as far as I know. There's so little involvement that we just don't talk about it because it's just like, ah, oh, well, that's just another like backwater conflict that doesn't affect us in any way. So we're just not going to like, who cares? Um, whereas, of course, when you go to Spain, uh, there's a sidebar. There's there's a museum in Barcelona just outside the Olympic Village called the Museo del Arte Nacional de Catalunya. I think it is basically the, the Museum of Catalonian Art. And they have a whole section in there like modern art area that is all just propaganda posters on both sides like of this conflict and it's it's a really moving thing to see because again like you're, you're talking about something that like as as we'll go into in a second left really deep scars on the nation as a whole and is is still something that is playing out in the relationships between basques and catalans and madrid itself Getting back on track, Franco takes over. He immediately reinstates the Marcha Real as the national anthem. The state, as established under Franco, was nominally neutral in the Second World War, although sympathetic to the Axis because, you know, they kind of helped install him in power in the first place. Right. Uh, Franco carries a lengthy record of human rights violations summary mass executions particularly during the civil war it's estimated that at least another almost half a million people spent time in prisons or camps or forced labor battalions to this day he is still reviled particularly in catalonia and basque country Looking past World War II, or really at the end of World War II, Spain is politically and economically isolated. And uh, they're even kept out of the United Nations until 1955, basically during the Cold War period, when it was strategically important for the U.S. to establish a military presence on the Iberian Peninsula as a counter to any possible move by the Soviet Union in the Mediterranean Basin. Franco declares in 1947 that he will be succeeded by a royal, but ultimately doesn't name an actual successor for 22 years, at which point he nominates Juan Carlos of Bourbon. Franco had named named another successor uh, who was assassinated in 1973 by Bass Separatists. So Juan Carlos wasn't really anybody's first choice. And, and again, like, time being a flat circle like this is just the same family coming back again uh with franco's death in november 1975 juan carlos succeeded to the position of king of spain and head of state in accordance with the Francoist law with the approval of the new spanish constitution in 1978 and the restoration of democracy the state uh basically 
gave away much of their authority to the regions and created an internal organization based on autonomous communities. So Spain itself kind of, uh, as a result of like, again, all of the damage to the national psyche that Franco has done, Spain at this point is still kind of a more a loose association of autonomous states than it is like a extremely centralized singular union, which of course like has has is the whole reason why Catalan independence is like still a thing and why Basque independence is still a thing and everybody kind of like has this mutually uh, relatively agreed on thing where like we're all gonna kind of play ball but we still hate you. As a result of that, uh, additionally, just because that legacy looms so large, uh, in 1975, the name of the anthem was changed to simply the Himno Nacional Español, uh, perhaps to stress that the anthem, instead of belonging to whatever Yahoo is in power, uh, this is an anthem that is representative of all Spanish people rather than just the king. Um, they also chose to remove the lyrics to the anthem to help dissociate from the Francoist regime. So this new post-Francoist monarchy is, is kind of in a tricky position. They didn't depose the dictator or even really stage a coup. The king was his chosen and groomed successor for over 20 years. And so when he finally steps into power, King Juan Carlos wants to move into a more democratic era but he can't also wash away the history of the monarchy or, or even the association, or especially the association with Franco. Instead of commissioning an entirely new song or bringing back the second anthem, which has always been linked with deposing the monarchy, they chose to keep the Marcha Real. Instead of creating something new, they changed the name and erased the lyrics. You could see this as symbolic, I guess, of a watered-down monarchy hamstrung by 400 years of history, or possibly as a new chapter for the monarchy, leaning into a new era of democracy and peace for the country. Either way, the whole story is wrapped up in the choice of this song. Yeah, uh, and, and one of the last things that we're going to cover is uh, yet another result that, that began in the 70s and still kind of continues to this day. Like There's, there's far more pushback against it now. Um, but upon Franco's death... And and sort of like all of these like massive reforms that happened really quickly between 75 and like 78, 79, the legislature engages in what they call the Pact of Forgetting. Um, it's a political decision by both parties to set aside blame and recrimination and avoid dealing with the legacy of Francoism simply because the process of then like coming back into power and immediately prosecuting still living people for things that were done at that point 30 years ago, 25, 20, 15 years ago, would be so ugly. And they have this incredibly tenuous piece. And everybody remembers when brothers were killing brothers over, you know, what kind of government they wanted to install that they just wanted to get away from that entirely. So um, this pact underpins the transition of, to the democracy of the 1970s and ensured that difficult questions about recent past were suppressed for fear of endangering national reconciliation and the restoration of liberal democratic freedoms. The gist is all of political society mutually decides to get off the carousel of 
blame and reprisal and simply focusing on maintaining the incredibly delicate peace in the name of moving forward as a nation and bringing Spain into the future. It's an incredibly poetic name for a thing, the Pact of Forgetting, and that idea is, is, is strong and necessary. In 1997, hey, I'm alive. Hey. Uh, the royal family issued a decree regulating the official use of the anthem. Among other things, a long version and a short version, without the section repeats, were decreed. The long version is to be used for the king, the short version is for the prince, the prime minister, or to be performed for sporting events or other events of the like. We've now reached the anthem breakdown portion of the show. We've talked a lot about both of these versions of a, of a Spanish national anthem. So first of all, let's listen to Himno Riego one more time, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Then we'll listen to the March Real and talk about that. So here's Himno de Riego. <laughs> That was Himno de Riego, the not current national anthem. And that one, uh, I think Josh alluded to, has a little bit more of a of a kind of Spanish vibe to it. Um, I, I, at first listen, of course, it depends on which Martial version you listen to. Um, but I kind of liked Himno de Riego a little bit more. It's a little bit more, I think Josh said, kind of folk-ish or folksy. It, yeah, it feels like a bit of a folk hymn. I mean, they're they're both March style mm-hmm. things, but like there's there's something really evocative about the maybe less the lyrics, but certainly the music of Himno de Riego. I feel like I'm kind of like listening to the overture of a musical or something like that. Right, right. Like it, it seems a bit more fantastical and a bit more whimsical than necessarily the Marcha Real does. Yeah, it's it's evocative and it's bright, but it's not it's not maybe pompous in the same way. It doesn't have uh, uh, I don't know maybe stoic or, or more. Well, it just doesn't have the the very strong march vibe yeah. of other national anthems. And yeah, I really dig that song. So, Josh, why don't you go ahead and read a couple of the uh, stanzas from this song so we can talk about that? Sure. Uh, serene and happy, brave and daring, let us sing, soldiers, the battle hymn. The world is astonished at our voices, and in us it beholds the sons of the Cid. Soldiers, the fatherland calls us to the fight. Let us swear for her sake to triumph or to die. 
Um, you know, it's it's the whole song itself is is just like you know what, like this is a this is a hill I'm prepared to die on. Man. Absolutely. Uh, like we we have struggled under the yoke of the monarchy long enough, and now we fight for our own independence and freedom. And isn't that great? Go get them, boys. There's a certain motivation in these lyrics, but I will say they're sort of not very specific to Spain. I don't think. Um, I feel Certainly. like while the while the music I think is more evocative of the country, you know, and that's a pretty subjective take. But I think the music being more evocative, the words are a little bit more just kind of generic. Yeah, I I certainly get the idea that maybe using this as your like official national anthem is sure. like, do we really want to be remembered as usurpers, or <laughs> do we want to be known for love of king and country and 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 pride in our Spanish culture and people? Yeah, I can, I can see why this one was maybe shelved, but there's a lot to love in it, certainly, both musically. And, of course, the lyrics are, are still very poetic. It, you don't escape these strong images. The world never saw more noble daring, nor any day greater valor was shown than that inflamed. We showed at the fire, awakened in Riego, the love of his land. Like, this amazing guy who did this, like, incredible thing. It's it's like we said earlier, like, like it's the kind of the, the same sort of vein of... of Wilhelmus, where like you have this incredible folk hero that like, sure. that we that we are just so you know he's an ideal for all of us to aspire to, but like again, in so doing, did some not super great things. So, but Wilhelmus uh, moved that into an epic poem of over a dozen stanzas, yeah. where you really captured the history in verse. Um, this is just kind of a snapshot of that of that emotion, I think, for Himno de Riego. So now let's move on and listen to uh, another version of Marcha Real. This one, I think, is going to be a lot more, uh, well, it's going to come in a lot stronger than the version we heard earlier in the podcast. This is the Marcha Real. We have talked about this in uh, in the previous episode. 
there are obviously different versions of the national anthem, both with words and without, and then also different kind of arrangements. Yeah. This one is is a powerhouse yeah, man. with that full kind of choir of men singing and biting into every single word. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is a powerful and evocative anthem. Yeah, it's it's it feels, I think like the f- first two words that come to mind are joyous and triumphant yes like like you you can this this i get like people standing and singing like full-throatedly about their love of of spain now immediately like you know some of the stuff that like is there like association with the monarchy itself and like an entirely different color of flag than exists currently (laughs) right uh and 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 all that kind of stuff like who cares but uh at the same time, like just your that you can just feel every bit of like their deeply seated love for the Spanish fatherland, and and regardless of your affiliation, whether Catalan, Basque, Andalusian, Toledan, whatever, all of them to some degree or another have a deeply seated love for Spain as a whole. So let's just read. You've alluded to it. Let's read just a little bit of the uh, or some of the lyrics from this. The March of Real. Glory, glory, crown of the fatherland, sovereign light, which in your standard is gold. Life, life, future of the fatherland. In your eyes is an open heart, purple and gold, immortal flag. In your colors together, flesh and soul are. And then I'm going to skip down to the chorus. Long live Spain, the cry of the fatherland. The triumphant explosion has opened the way to the sun. Long live Spain, repeated 20 peoples. And when they speak, they have faith in the Spanish will. Mark plow, hammer, and bugle, your noble rhythm at the cry of the fatherland faith. Guide the mind and the hand until the end. The long live Spain, Spain, attends all standing. That's that's an interesting like final uh, inscribement, I guess, for like those final lyrics. But I mean, (laughs) you, you have it all there. Like, you know, like the... The role of faith in Spanish society, deep love of fatherland, deep love of uh, the monarchy itself, and a bunch of like incredibly evocative imagery about Spanish pride. The, the cry of the fatherland, the triumphant explosion has opened the way to the sun. <laughs> Hot damn. <laughs> And and again, sung as it was in this version, yeah, uh, yeah you're sold. It, it brings tears to your eyes. Yeah, it man. really is 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 magical in a way that that music can be, especially one with you know with strong associations with one's own country. Um, this is a, an excellent marriage of of kind of verse and chord. Agreed. Um, so that was the Marcha Real. And of course, as Josh alluded to earlier, we have the purple and gold immortal flag. Obviously not the current Spanish flag yeah. colors. Um, so a little it's bit It's gone outdated. through like eight iterations since then, just over history. But yeah, I think they ditched purple and gold in the early 1800s. But certainly the feelings and the sentiments are certainly. I think both of these anthems themselves are two uh, fantastically evocative tracks uh each of which you know deeply tied to like a core root moment in spanish history um and i'm glad that we've had the opportunity to explore you know the context in which they were made but additionally like you know just the 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 soul of, of each of these pieces 
the idea of of trying to remember a you know a no longer current national anthem it just helps bring it back into our our collective memory or for yeah. a lot of american centric you know minds where i i don't know that much about a lot of these other national anthems yep. and and gives me a, a greater sense of what the spanish identity includes and certainly a, as a part of its history so having both of these as a testament to to many years of of war and revolution in spain you know they're they're both very important um, and I like them both a lot, even just just very subjectively. Yeah, they're both, both very powerful tracks. Both fantastic songs. The last section, we have some fun facts and or slip ups. Josh, you want to take that one? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, there were two big sort of sporting anthem slip ups in Spanish history. Uh, in 1967, during the qualifying stage for the European Championship in Prague, the Hymno de Riego was performed by mistake instead of the the then official fascist anthem of Spain. I'm sure that went over so well. great. <laughs> uh, and additionally, at the 2003 Davis Cup Finals held in Australia, James Morrison performed Hymno de Riego instead of Spain's current national anthem, the Marcha Real. Australian tennis officials claim there was an error on the CD provided to the musician. But Spanish sport authorities still issued an official protest. Oops. Yeah, and I can understand both of these. Again, yeah. I, I would say musically I'm a fan of the former. So that brings us to the end of episode two of The Anthemist for the Spanish National Anthem. As always, if you have any questions or concerns, comments, suggestions, or strongly worded emails about what we messed up, the nuances that we missed, or even maybe the you know the overtures that we missed, maybe even the big stuff, um, I hope not. I don't think we did. But please email us at anthemistpodcast at gmail.com. And I think we have the episode picked out next week. We will be covering the country of... Japan. Japan. We so move, excited. We move away from Europe and uh, to the east. It's a, a very interesting episode, as they all are. But yeah. I know Josh and I are both very excited about Japan. Yeah. I, some of this, I think we just wanted to get away from just doing all European Union nations, you know, out the gate. Uh, kind of spread it spread it out a little bit and, and get kind of a more diverse musical take. Uh, interestingly enough, there's, there's not as much necessarily as much of a dense historical record sure. <laughs> in relation to Kimi Gayo, even though it's like content wise, one of the oldest national anthems in the world, if not the oldest, um, there's still plenty of controversy around it, which is going to be a lot of fun to, uh, plumb the depths of, I guess. Stick around for next episode when we cover Japan. And for the Anthemist Podcast, I am Robert Winship. And I'm Josh Hugel. We'll see you next week. Bye.